National Trust Magazine, Summer 2020. Hello, I'm Sally Palmer, editor of the National Trust Magazine. Welcome to your summer issue. Today, like all of us, I'm following government guidance and staying at home to make this recording. Sadly, the signal from Stourhead in Wiltshire wasn't of high enough quality for Alan Power, our regular presenter, to bring the magazine to you this time. So I'll be taking you through the highlights of the latest edition. I'm afraid we won't be holding our usual conversations either with staff, writers and expert contributors, but I hope you enjoy hearing all the articles read aloud. Both of our professional readers are of course recording from home. I'm especially excited about this summer issue, which is a particularly special one. In this, our 125th anniversary year, we've turned the magazine over to you, our members, as a heartfelt thank you for your support of the Trust. Everything possible, every feature, every interview, has either been written by or suggested by a member. Even all the photographs on the front cover of the printed version are by and of our members. You're right at the heart of all that the Trust does, and we couldn't do it without you. Thank you. To start, instead of my regular editor's letter, we have a special message from our Director-General, Hilary McGrady. Hello. I'm recording this in the final weeks of April, at a time of national crisis, and yet one of the loveliest springs I can remember. Wherever you are, I hope this finds you safe and well. Many of you have been kind enough to get in touch and tell me how you're doing. A lot of what you've said has really struck a chord with me. Some of you have spoken about the way you miss the places you love and the people you see when you visit National Trust places, the places that belong to all of us. Many of us are finding it hard to isolate when we love getting out and about and being part of something bigger. Thank you for staying in touch and connected with us. This crisis is taking lives and causing grief and loss. And I know some of you will have experienced this directly, and I'm so sorry. And I know a lot of National Trust members are on the front line. I can only say thank you on behalf of all of our staff and volunteers for everything you are doing. In recent weeks, our curators, gardeners and interior experts have been working to bring you stories, content, activities and social connection via our website and our social channels. And I know that this has brought a lot of joy. I loved seeing the results of our great intergenerational Easter scavenger hunt and have been delighted to see how many people have been getting involved with our daily doses of nature. This crisis is reminding many of us how the natural world anchors us and helps us navigate difficult situations. Nature is so critical to human well-being and I do hope you're able to get the sight or sound of it into your daily life. Our website and social media channels are full of the sights and sounds of nature, from newborn lambs to the wonderful sight of blossom as it sweeps across the country. Please do keep visiting. I am really looking forward to the time when we can start opening our doors and our gates again. We know that times are going to be tough, but the Trust has been with us through some of the nation's darkest hours and brightest days. I wish you and your family the very best in these uncertain times, and I thank you so much for your continued support. Thank you, Hilary. That was National Trust Director-General 
Hilary McGrady. We are honoured that the President of the National Trust, His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales, has marked the Trust's 125th anniversary with the following words, read to you by Glenn McCready. This year marks the 125th anniversary of the National Trust. It also happens to be my 25th year as President of this great British institution, which, with your valuable support, continues to play a vital role in our national life. When our three founders established their new organisation in 1895, it would surely have seemed impossible to them, or indeed anyone else, that a membership of millions of people would one day own and support 250,000 hectares of farmland, 780 miles of coastline, and more than 500 historic properties, together with glorious gardens and spectacular nature reserves. This remarkable outcome is due not just to their vision, but to their insistence that owning land and property on behalf of the nation was essential if it was to be saved forever from the threat of development and loss of public access. We owe a huge debt of gratitude to those pioneers and to everyone whose support over the years has made the current situation a reality. Your membership is much more than a past to beautiful places. Every penny you spend helps keep these places alive and special for the future and open to all. Miles of coastal paths, iconic wilderness sites in the Lake District and precious woodland habitats, all rich in nature, remain open to explore because of the support of generations of National Trust members. I believe passionately that today's challenges make the National Trust more important than ever, and as I write this now, events are progressing at the most extraordinary pace and are touching all our lives. The global spread of coronavirus is challenging society in a way that we have not experienced for generations, and as a direct impact it has, of course, necessitated the temporary closure of the National Trust's properties, parks and gardens too. Sadly, the situation has also forced the cancellation of the 125th anniversary garden party that was due to take place at Buckingham Palace on Thursday 14 May, when I had much been looking forward to meeting many of you. While this is undoubtedly a great shame, I know the anniversary will not be overlooked and I shall do whatever I can to play my part in celebrating this important milestone, however remotely. Meanwhile, I wholeheartedly applaud Tim Parker and his fellow trustees for their swift and pragmatic response to the coronavirus pandemic, which cannot have been easy. On top of this pandemic, we are also facing crises of climate change and biodiversity loss, both of which stem from our unwillingness to value nature properly and to recognise the limits set by the renewable boundaries of our planet. The National Trust is powerfully engaged in countering the effects of these crises. The plans for the next 10 years include 20 million more trees and developing green corridors that enhance biodiversity and are accessible from our towns and cities. This is particularly important because our work is not just about preservation and avoiding further losses. 
there are huge opportunities actively to restore and improve the natural environment that sustains, engages and delights us in equal measure. At a time when public appetite for change has never been higher, the backing of millions of people gives the trust the scale and influence to be heard and to make things happen. At the same time, it continues to provide countless ways for us all to connect personally and profoundly with nature and our heritage, and to be inspired to take action ourselves. While this year's milestone anniversary may be depressingly overshadowed by the current crisis, I can only say how enormously privileged I am to have watched this remarkable institution grow over the last 25 years and hope you will look forward, as much as I do, to seeing the next chapter unfold. My team and I always enjoy sifting through our postbag. We love reading about why you value your membership, memories of past visits, and how you've been supporting our cause. We received particularly lovely letters and photos ahead of our reader takeover. And a highlight for us was being able to fill the print magazine's front cover entirely with your photographs, for the first time ever. Jess Hoggins in Shropshire shares her membership story. My mum bought my partner and me trust membership for Christmas in 2017. We were expecting our first child the following summer, and I had visions of walking round Attingham Park in Shropshire on my maternity leave. By the time my leave was over, I felt sure they were going to tell me I'd used my card too many times. I even went into labour thanks to a walk around nearby Dudmaston. Now we visit a trust place every weekend, so that our 18-month-old gets dirty and is at one with nature. He runs up to every gift shop to hand in his trust visitor's passport for a stamp. Peter Hassel in Leicestershire describes a day filled with kindness. I would like to thank all the staff and volunteers at Quarry Bank in Cheshire for making our visit last September so memorable. It was my mother's 67th wedding anniversary, and from the first person we met to the last, we had nothing but kindness. This included the gentleman in the top garden who offered us damsons, the lady in the lower garden who gave us a map and directions, the servers in the cafe and ice cream parlour, the lady we met to request a buggy to take us back up the hill, and the staff in the mill itself, who gave an excellent demonstration of carding, cleaning and brushing the raw cotton. We were pleased at how wheelchair-friendly the whole property was. We even bumped into a National Trust photographer, Derek Hatton, who kindly took our photograph, providing a great memory of a grand day out. Jill Actas in the West Midlands describes her experience at the National Trust's Birmingham back-to-backs. Octavia Hill's words on the cover of the Spring magazine are undoubtedly true. We all want quiet. We all want beauty. We all need space. And of course, the words National Trust bring to mind images of grand houses, sweeping landscapes, magnificent gardens and wilderness. But it's also important to remember the other places in trust care, such as the Birmingham back-to-backs, where the inhabitants would have little quiet, beauty or space. The tour guides do an admirable job of conjuring up those lives from the recent past, and I gained so much from my visit. 
It was an emotional journey because my father was born in a back-to-back in exactly that part of Birmingham. Stepping back in time brought his boyhood hardships into sharp focus. It's wonderful that trust properties can share stories about the lives of ordinary folk and so provide a deeper connection with one's own history. Richard and Jane Waldrum in Hampshire wrote about their 21st century grand tour. We believe a holiday should start from the moment you shut your front door. Five years ago, we decided to explore the areas of our own country that we had never seen before, rather than go abroad. We have never regretted it. When planning our holidays, we search all the trust properties in an area and then find attractive villages where we might stop for lunch and locate historic pubs to stay the night. The idea of a touring holiday sounds old-fashioned, and it is. The European Grand Tour was popular from the 17th century for the upper classes. The Trust's stately homes are full of artefacts they brought back. Touring in England became popular in the 18th century as a result of travel writers such as Daniel Defoe, William Gilpin and John Thelwall. This was the Romantic era, and there was a desire to get back to nature, partly as a reaction to the Industrial Revolution. We have had jaunts to Yorkshire, Cornwall and Norfolk. Although you cannot guarantee sunshine, the UK's landscape and historic places are unbeatable. Marilyn Lewis in Dorset describes a recent trip that left a lasting impression. I've recently joined the Trust and one of my first visits with my new membership was to Greenway in Devon. This place left such a strong impression on me. I was really taken with the maturity of the trees which are seldom allowed to reach such an old age. The calm these trees brought worked wonders for my spirit and imagination. Days out are rare, as I'm a full-time carer for my husband. It was really special to spend time together with him, my daughter, her husband and their two dogs. We were able to take home a cooking apple, which we made into a crumble when we got home, as a memory of the day. I'm sure we will laugh and remember this special day for years to come. Thank you to everyone who contacted us. Please continue to stay in touch. You can write to us at The Editor, National Trust Magazine, Helis, Kemble Drive, Swindon, Wiltshire, SN2, 2NA, or email magazine at nationaltrust.org.uk. You can also stay in touch with The Trust on social media via Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. The Trust has magnificent gardens, buildings and landscapes in our care. But those that most touch the hearts of our members are often the smaller and more local places. Many of you got in touch to share your hidden gems. Here are five of our favourites. Our first hidden gem is the Courts Garden in Wiltshire, and it was chosen by Barbara Abrahams from Somerset. She says, The Courts is a little-known garden that is very special to me. In summer, the roses are at full power and complemented by herbaceous plants such as cranesbill, geraniums and peonies. The perfume is amazing. I love the colour explosion here. And it's not just the flowers... On one visit, I saw the blue flash of a kingfisher. I always revisit the trees at the court's garden. My favourite is a massive beech with a huge spread. 
In spring, I happily snap photos of its soft young foliage, and come autumn, I'm back to see its changing colour. Other favourite trees are the Indian bean tree, Judas tree, and dogwood. I'd love to learn more about them. Can you tell? It's my happy place. The Courts is an intensely personal garden, and every gardener who has cared for it has played their part in its evolution. The arboretum Barbara loves so much was the passion of Moira Goff, who began to develop it in 1952 after taking on care of her parents' garden. She wanted the 1.6-hectare, 4-acre arboretum to feel relaxed, in contrast to the formal gardens, so she planted trees that gave it the character of a gentle English woodland. Moira became life-tenant of the garden and cared for it alongside the trust until her death in 1990. Her ashes were buried around the fern-leaved beech tree she'd planted in acknowledgement of her love of the garden. Moira's mother, Lady Cecily Goff, may have sown the seeds for her daughter's love of gardening. Cecily had a real flair for planting. Visitors can see her touch in the flower beds, where clever planting schemes use colour and texture to create contrast and harmony. Cecily was greatly inspired by influential artist-turned-horticulturalist Gertrude Jekyll, who brought a painterly quality to garden design. Both mother and daughter built on the garden legacy started by George Hastings, a surgeon colonel from London. When Hastings purchased the courts in 1902, it was an unpromising landscape which had been the site of a demolished industrial mill. Hastings was an amateur, though passionate, garden designer and was responsible for many of the pathways, hedges, buildings and statues we see today. For more information about the court's garden, go to nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash the dash courts dash garden. Next, we go to Houghton Mill and Waterclose Meadows in Cambridgeshire, chosen by David Rushton from the West Midlands. He reflects... I was born in Cambridgeshire, and my grandparents lived in Houghton, so I grew up around Houghton Mill and Waterclose Meadows. It's a small trust property compared to the great estates, but some of my fondest memories come from this little mill. Visits there enriched my childhood. I'd scramble around the old wooden beams, learn how the mill worked, and even buy flour to take home. The real gem, however, is its picturesque setting in a meadow beside a quiet river. My grandmother showed me the world of the countryside. She passed away recently, so I'd love to inspire someone else to go to Houghton Mill to make fond memories there, as my grandmother did for me. The idyllic looks of Houghton Mill are deceptively picturesque, as there has been a mill grinding grain at this site for over a millennium. At its peak, at the end of the Industrial Revolution, it was producing a tonne of high-quality flour per hour. Early records show that there has been a mill at Houghton since AD 974, when the manor of Houghton, including a mill, was given to Ramsey Abbey. Local farmers would pay a price, known as a mulcher, to bring their grain to be made into flour. The relationship between the villagers and the abbey was not always harmonious. Rioting villagers once successfully campaigned to have the mill's sluice gates, which had caused flooding across their land, removed. In the 18th century, 
Houghton Mill would have been one of 120 mills on the central 70-mile stretch of the River Great Ouse. By the late 19th century, the area was briefly home to a colony of artists, who were enraptured by the lush and thus far unpainted landscapes. But by the mid-1930s, almost all the artists had moved away, due to changing tastes in the art market and the Depression. The advent of steam-powered mills marked a downward turn for the fortunes of Houghton Mill. By the 1920s, production had dwindled to just animal feed, and it closed in 1928 when the last miller retired. For a time, the mill stood neglected, an obsolete reminder of a time gone by. Then, in 1934, a group of local people gathered to form the Houghton Mill Restoration Committee, who were able to sublet the building to the recently formed Youth Hostel Association. The committee was able to buy the mill and transferred ownership to the National Trust in 1939. The water wheel finally began turning again in 2000, following a successful bid for National Lottery funding. Now, visitors can watch the stone ground flower being made as it was over 150 years ago. For more information about Houghton Mill and Waterclose Meadows, go to nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash Houghton dash mill dash and dash Waterclose dash Meadows. Our third hidden gem is Fine Court in Somerset, chosen by Richard Deverell from Somerset. He says, I've known Fine Court for many years. It's a hidden gem of the Quantock Hills, and with its woods and meadows, is a great place for gentle walks, splashing in streams, and discovering ruins. It is where my wife and I took our young children to explore and scramble and connect with nature, and it remains very popular with local families. I'm a volunteer there now and have helped the team introduce some extra elements on the walking trails. There is a pond-dipping pool, a walled garden that's being restored, and a courtyard with a little cafe. It is all very low-key, but has, I am sure, been instrumental in introducing many Somerset children to a love of nature and exploring. The wild gardens of Fine Court might today feel far removed from the grounds of a grand country estate, but that is what this landscape was – before the mansion was destroyed by fire in 1894. Its location in the heart of the Quantock Hills was England's first area of outstanding natural beauty, and visitors have been inspired by its wildness and tranquility for hundreds of years. Fine Court's most famous and mysterious resident, Andrew Cross, was just 21 when he took over the management of the Fine Court estate after the death of his parents in the early 19th century. He was a visionary scientist. On his return home after studying at Oxford University, he conducted such pioneering experiments on electricity that he earned the nickname the Thunder and Lightning Man from locals. The wild weather and scenery of the Quantock Hills inspired Cross to poetry as well as science. He once said, I have a stake through my heart that nails me to Quantock. Wordsworth and Coleridge, who lived just a few miles away at Coleridge Cottage, are said to have been among his many visitors. 
The Quantock Hills may lack the dramatic heights of the Cumbrian Mountains, but from their gentle summits, the two poets could see across the flat landscape of the Somerset Levels to the Mendip Hills, and across the Bristol Channel to the Brecon Beacons in South Wales. With their writing kits and folding chairs, Coleridge and Wordsworth took to the hills, taking inspiration for a new type of poetry. Besides the Quantock's beauty, they are an important natural habitat for a number of species, such as the rare Barberstell bat and birds such as the Dartford warbler. Diverse woodland, aided by coppice management, is rich with plants such as hazel and honeysuckle. Today, the landscape around Fine Court still inspires the arts and sciences. The mossy glades still have the power to charm the next Coleridge, while the science of ecology guides the care of this precious place. For more information about Fine Court, go to nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash fine dash court. Next, we stay in Somerset and find out about Ladies' Walk at Montacute House, chosen by Katie Kitchen from Northamptonshire. Katie remembers. I grew up on a farm in the village of Montacute, which sits on the edge of the Montacute House estate. I've enjoyed visits to the Elizabethan mansion, yet it is not the house that draws me. It is the little-known Ladies' Walk, a gentle route which heads out from the estate and up the steep, scarp slope cradling the village. It winds through almost a mile of fantastically old, deciduous woodland, with oak, beech and chestnut trees, and the best views across Somerset. The smells evoke childhood memories when I visit. Spring daffodils are followed by wild garlic, primroses and bluebells. I remember scrambling over fallen trees, searching for bracket fungi, and the longest centipedes I've ever found in the UK. The sweet chestnuts were our family secret, stored in sand for cooking over the fire on dark winter evenings. I scraped elbows and knees climbing trees on a spiral staircase of branches. There, I felt I was master of all I surveyed. The lambing barns of my working youth were off to the left, and the abbey and church in front of me. I could see the village square where scenes from the BBC's late 1970s sitcom To the Manor Born were filmed, and the 18th century folly, where I felt if only I could grow my hair long, I could be Rapunzel. Then finally, Montacute House itself, where we sang Christmas carols in the hall. For me, Ladies' Walk means an hour of deep enjoyment where I can reminisce and notice the changes that creep into a village. It remains my favourite trust gem. Ladies' walks were commonplace in 18th and early 19th century gardens. They were usually created as a pathway from the mansion to the flower garden of the lady of the house. Often these floral gardens were pushed to the periphery of the estate so the landscaped parkland could run right to the front door in the fashionable Capability Brown style of the time, so the lady and her friends needed a pleasant access route. At Montacute House, the undulating ladies' walk runs through the old park, which was once part of a former monastic priory. Planting for the walk began with the picturesque terrace in the 18th century, and this can still be seen today. 
The woodland planting Katie describes consists of mostly broad-leaved species such as beech, and the dramatic ridgeline offers wide views to the house and village beyond. The circular walk returns through the old park, passing close to a pair of sweet chestnut trees, the oldest trees on the estate. You can find out more about Montacute House and the Ladies Walk at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash Montacute house. Our final hidden gem is brought to us by Richard Sims from Suffolk, who shares the recently uncovered history of Dunwich Heath and Beach in Suffolk. As a volunteer at Dunwich Heath, I wondered why we didn't know more about the history of this place. So, for the last three years, alongside the Trust and with funding from the National Lottery Heritage Fund, I've been researching the little-known and fascinating history of the last 300 years of Dunwich Heath. We discovered that the Coast Guard Cottages building was actually a successor to something called the Preventive Station that used to house the Preventive Water Guard. The guard tackled smuggling during the 18th century, and their old station looked over a beach favoured by smugglers, including one, John Harvey, who ran the Hadley Gang. He regularly arrived on the beach with up to 200 horses, many with carts, and as many men as he could muster. The preventive officers had no hope of stopping these well-armed smugglers, but they did record what they saw. Tons of tea and tobacco and 2,500 gallons of brandy illegally entering the Suffolk coast every week. Smuggling eased off during the 19th century, but the Industrial Revolution brought a huge amount of shipping. Today, you might be lucky to see one ship, but in 1850 you could have seen 500 a day. Old sailing ships without engines inevitably led to shipwrecks, and the role of the renamed Coast Guards was increasingly about keeping watch and rescue. During the First World War, Dunwich Heath was an observation post for the East Coast War Channel, a huge supply line which moved industrial supplies to the war front in France. As a result, the German Navy attacked the East Coast relentlessly. Today, there are around 24 wrecks offshore, as well as a German U-boat. The Second World War brought more dramatic changes to the Heath. It became the site of a radar station, alongside a colossal amount of defence works, including anti-glider and anti-tank defences. These were eventually put to good use for Exercise Crucian, a full-scale rehearsal for the Normandy landings of 1944. At the height of the operations, 8,000 military personnel were based at Dunwich. After the war, efforts to clear the site of military structures and armaments went on for at least 25 years, and they were given extra impetus in 1956 when a Heath fire caused much of the leftover ordnance to explode. For those who lived through the war, getting rid of the evidence was a way of forgetting the horror and finding calm in the wildlife, beauty and fresh air. I am now working with the property team to create new guided walks and displays to share these stories with visitors, which will be unveiled later this year. And for more information about Dunwich Heath and Beach, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash Dunwich dash Heath dash and dash beach. The 
National Trust looks after 780 miles of coast in England, Wales and Northern Ireland. These include parts of the glorious South West Coast Path, which stretches like a golden thread for 630 miles from Minehead in Somerset to Pool Harbour in Dorset. Member Caroline Borick from Cheddar wrote to us to share her experience of walking on the South West Coast Path and ask how it's looked after. She said... I have been walking the southwest coast path over the past year, a few days each month. All of it is splendid, but there is always something a little extra special about the National Trust land along the path. What is it? Do you do anything in particular to make it this way, or is it a case of letting nature take a hold? These small areas are, I think, one of your unsung wonders. We thought the best way to answer Caroline's question would be to invite her to spend a day revisiting one of her favourite stretches of the coast path at Wembury in Devon. I went with her, and we met National Trust Ranger Jessica Tatton-Brown. Jess is one of the rangers responsible for this patch, and she was happy to answer every question Caroline could think to throw at her while we walked. I thought we'd have a little look at the beach first, says Ranger Jessica Tatton-Brown, as she and National Trust member Caroline Borwick pour together over a map of Wembury Point. Then we'll follow the coast path around and head a little way inland through Clitters Wood. We'll play it by ear, see how slippery it is. It's one of those windy, bright mornings you sometimes get sandwiched between blustery wet days on the South Devon coast. The waves are quite high and the clouds are scudding across a changeable sky. The tide's on its way out and rock pools and wet seaweed glisten in the fleeting sunlight. Jess explains, gesturing toward the beach, the geology and the marine life here are very special. Wembury is a site of special scientific interest, a triple SI. It's one of the UK's best places for marine life. Its rocky reefs form rock pools, which are home to a wide range of shore plants and animals. Its cliffs house nesting seabirds. It's also a voluntary marine conservation zone, which means people are asked not to fish with nets further out and not to fish in this area at all to help preserve it. We set off up the narrow path from the beach. It's a short, sharp climb, and as we pause to catch our breath, Jess turns and points to a small herd of ponies grazing on the headland behind us. You can just see our conservation grazing ponies. Some of them are Dartmoor ponies. They do a wonderful job eating through the really thick bits of scrub. They're better than any mowing machine. Dartmoor ponies are in dire straits at the moment, through not having a role in the modern days as much as they did in the past. They were originally used to carry tin from the mines and for farm work. Being able to use them in places like this for conservation grazing is really important for the breed as well as for the landscape. The habitat we're passing is rich and varied. We see plenty of seabirds, but also small farmland birds. Wembury Point is a UK breeding stronghold for the Searle Bunting, a small relative of the more common Yellowhammer, which predominantly needs to feed on seeds and grain to survive the winter months. Jess explains, countrywide, Methods of harvesting are now so excellent that the amount of grain that gets spilled or doesn't make it into the harvest is minuscule, so the cell bunting population has completely crashed. 
the National Trust has been working in partnership with the RSPB and Natural England to create habitats where cell buntings can thrive. It's a massive success story for the whole area. One of Wembury's fields is planted every season with wheat and left unharvested, purely for the overwintering birds. Arable weeds, flowers that historically would have been found alongside arable crops, have flourished in the field. Caroline, who loves flowers, is particularly interested, as Jess tells us that the small-flowered catchfly, an arable weed related to red campion but much smaller, is now critically endangered. Jess explains, In May 2019, we got 20,000 small-flowered catchfly seeds from the seed bank at Kew Gardens, which we strewed all over the wheat field. It was so dry last summer that none germinated. But the seeds are viable for five years, so with bated breath, I will be out there counting seedlings. Hopefully, we'll see some flowers come July this year. The path flattens and broadens out, and I have the chance to ask Caroline a little more about herself. I was an army child. I don't come from anywhere. I had a travelling childhood. We lived in the UK, Germany and the States. I find it hard to settle. But now my husband's retired, we've moved to Somerset, and it really feels like home. We've been there about three years now. Ages. Caroline's a life member a gift from her mother-in-law, with a grown-up son and daughter and a new grandchild. My husband and I have got so much out of our life membership at the National Trust. We have now given the same to our daughter and her new family, says Caroline. She's enjoyed walking since her middle years and usually walks the coast path with her friend Susie, who she met when both were living in Shanghai for their husband's work. They try to get out two or three days a month, walking 10 or 15 miles a day, and staying in B&Bs. We started last summer, says Caroline. We've really noticed how the countryside changes as we walk through the different parts, even though it's all the southwest coast path. The northern part is all drama. The cliffs are amazing. The colour of the stone, all the contours of the geology, just extraordinary. Along the south, it's a lot softer, though not always easier to walk. Our conversation turns to Jess's life as a ranger. I've done all sorts of bits and pieces, but conservation has always been at the heart of it all, she says. I'm a farmer's daughter, and I studied marine biology at university. There's nowhere I'm happier than working with farmers on the coast. I'm relatively new to the Trust. I've been here for about three years now. I started as a volunteer. It's such a beautiful part of the world to work in. The Trust's ranger teams look after particular patches of coast and work closely with the Southwest Coast Path Association. Jess is one of six rangers in the South Devon office, which has about 3,240 hectares, that's 8,000 acres, in its care, stretching from Wembry Point in the west up to Dartmouth. It relies heavily on its volunteers. Jess continues, We have about 50 magnificent volunteers, all with different skills. Some come out with us rangers and do practical workdays. Others are self-led, so we give them lists of tasks to do. We've got auditors who walk the path and then report back any problems. And we've even got people who come into the office and help count the donations. There's a job for everybody. In 2010, 
the government commissioned a report on the UK's state of nature. The Lawton report hammered home the extent of the threat to nature and how severely it is in decline. It suggested four clear ways that landowners and conservation charities could help nature by making habitats bigger, better, more and joined up. The idea is that little nature reserves are great, but effectively they're just islands, says Jess. Without that connectivity and genetic diversity, with climate change and the pressures that are about to befall us, we won't be able to sustain what's to come. The National Trust has taken those four recommendations and put them in the heart of our conservation, working with farmers and other landowners to make more space for nature. We head inland, up the Yelm estuary, and into Clitter's Wood. Caroline is intrigued to hear more about the importance of the coastal woodlands and their management. She and Susie generally try to stay next to the sea on their walks, and it hadn't really occurred to them to venture inland. Jess says, A lot of people don't realise that coastal woodland needs managing. Like so much of the landscape round here, it needs people to look after it. You can't just leave it. If everything in a woodland is all exactly the same age and canopy height, it becomes one uniform habitat. Creating light and space are really important elements of our work because the most biodiverse, rich area of a woodland is the place where you get all of that light and variation in habitat. If we can create spaces within our woodland, open up rides, pathways and glades and let the light in, we can create all sorts of habitats that are perfect for insects, birds and bats and a wonderful range of plant life. We pass an ash tree and Jess looks pensive. Ash dieback has arrived with full force into Devon, unfortunately. The experts think about 90 to 99% of them are going to die across the country. We still get Dutch elm disease down here too, You'll see elms, but after about 25 years, they get the disease and die. And the poor old horse chestnuts have a couple of different diseases attacking them at the moment. The general consensus is that all this is an element of climate change. The only way we can help safeguard our woodlands for the future is by making sure they're in the best shape we can. We loop across a field with Dartmoor, a purple smudgy backdrop, and head back towards the sea along a track. We find ourselves gazing at the brooding Great Mewstone, a small wildlife haven of an island just offshore. Jess tells us mew is an old word for gull, and we can see plenty of them looping and calling around it. In the early 1800s, a gentleman was sentenced to go to Australia as a convict on a boat, says Jess. He managed to get his sentence reduced to spend seven years on the Mewstone instead with his family. Caroline chips in, I know this story. After his sentence ended, he didn't want to return to the mainland, so he stayed. Jess says he used to have a little ferry. Apparently you could wave on the beach at Wembury and he'd row over and take you back. You can see his house, the most amazing hobbity creation. It's circular with a beautiful oval window in it with a little chimney and a conical roof. We walk back along the path towards the car park, our thoughts turning towards lunch in the local pub. I ask Caroline if she's found out what she wanted to know about the Trust's management of its stretches of the southwest coast path. 
Oh, I have, she says. So much goes into making these small patches of ground special and linking them up. It's not just leaving them, it's managing them, and it's people caring for them and about them. Each little tiny piece is worth spending time on, as it's all part of a whole. It makes me look at the landscape in a wholly different way. It's just been stunning, and Jess is so interesting and knows so much. I really learnt masses, and I know I will look at everything from a slightly different viewpoint in future. We are so blessed with our countryside, and it is just wonderful to have such caring custodians of it. Have you ever visited a trust place and wondered what it would really be like to live there? It's a question member and tenant Rachel Hallam, who lives in a trust farm cottage on the Penrose estate in Cornwall, is asked often, and is why she suggested we interview other people who call our places home. So that's exactly what we did. First of all, we talked to James Fuller, Head of Estate Management and Rural Surveying. Living in a trust property isn't as unusual as you might think. Some 4,500 trust-owned houses and cottages are home to residential tenants alongside a further 800 farms. A small number of properties are even inhabited by the families of those who have generously donated them to the trust. Our tenanted houses are often on our larger estates, or sometimes part of the villages that were built for estate workers. The estates were self-sustaining, and the owners needed homes for a host of workers. Today they help visitors imagine lives past. Many of our residential buildings are important in their own right, particularly for vernacular architecture specific to a local area. Some, such as Arlington Row in the village of Bybury, Gloucestershire, are even iconic. The picture-perfect trust-tenanted cottages were once the home of 17th-century weavers. Today they appear on the inside cover of many British passports. Having tenants in buildings like these helps us maintain them, as a lived-in house doesn't deteriorate as quickly. It also provides income for our conservation work, as well as supporting the local economy. Above all, we want people to enjoy living in them. We hear from Rachel Hallam about her life on the Penrose estate in Cornwall, with her husband Andy and grown-up sons Richard and Charles. We still can't believe we live here. On Father's Day... 2016, we went for a walk that passed by the bottom of the house. I took a picture of my husband Andy and our boys with the sea behind them. I remember saying it would be amazing to live here. Two years later, here we are. I didn't go looking for a trust house. We found it by chance on Rightmove, and when we came to view the place, we fell in love with it. It's an old farmhouse that had become derelict, and the trust had totally transformed it. Inside, everything is now very modern with an open plan downstairs, but its history is palpable. We still have the original fireplace with the old beam across. We don't know exactly how old the house is, but we're doing some research at the local museum to find out more. People are often curious about where we live, especially those who knew the property before it was renovated. Our location on the footpath brings a lot of walkers past us, and they often want to find out more about the house and how we came to live here. Many people don't realise it's trust-owned. Andy and Richard started volunteering as woodland rangers for the trust on the Penrose estate last year. 
They both really enjoy doing something different from their normal working lives, and it's perfect for Richard as he's studying for an environmental and earth science degree. We often meet trust staff and volunteers and bring them a cup of tea when they're working at the barn next door. My favourite time of the day here is just before dusk. It's so tranquil. We can go out into the woods for a walk and not see another soul. We're close to the southwest coast path, and there's an enormous lake next to us with wonderful wildlife. One night, we had an owl on our windowsill, knocking on the window with its beak. The highlight of last year was seeing deer in the woodland near our house for the first time. Living here wouldn't be for everyone. Our nearest neighbour is four fields away, so we're fairly isolated. It was also quite a task bringing our half-acre garden back to health after years of the house not being lived in. But as a family, we pull together and get things done. Nothing surprises us now. One morning, we woke to find seven cows in our garden, so we ended up getting dressed and helping the farmer herd them back to their field again. It was really funny. For us, the good parts of living here far outweigh any drawbacks. Next, we hear from Robert Floyd and his wife Patsy, who live at Great Chalfield in Wiltshire and open the manor up to around 20,000 visitors every year. Great Chalfield was my mother's childhood home and I grew up here too. My great-grandfather bought the medieval manor in 1878, but my grandfather restored it during the Edwardian period, so today we enjoy a mixture of the two styles. My grandparents donated it to the Trust in 1943 to secure its long-term future and so that other people could enjoy it after the Second World War. My wife, Patsy, and I moved here in 1984. We had a wonderful time raising our three sons at Great Chalfield, and we now have four grandchildren too who love visiting. Some of the Trust's great houses were built for show or entertaining in a grand way, but our house has a warm, lived-in feeling with family photos around, and our dog Orla loves to greet people. Visitors are sometimes startled to find our grandchildren have built a den somewhere, but I think they like to see the place alive. My favourite thing about living here is the pleasure the house gives to visitors. Patsy and I manage it on behalf of the Trust, and we now welcome 20,000 visitors a year. When we made our home here, it was just a few thousand a year. It makes me happy that so many people are enjoying Great Chalfield. We're involved in the running of the property in every way. Patsy has worked with our gardener to replant all the borders in the gardens. We organise events, we farm the land, and we spend a lot of time on the history of the house. We have a wonderful team of about 15 room guides, but we do chip in with room guiding ourselves from time to time. People are usually quite surprised to learn that their tour guide also lives here. We have planted new woodlands on the 350-acre farm. One of the greatest joys of living here has been creating wildlife corridors on the farmland. The encouragement of the Trust really helps us to farm in an environmentally friendly way. Running the place is hard work and it can be chaotic at times, especially when Chalfield is being used as a set for filming TV series such as Poldark. We enjoy it immensely though. We do our level best to make it enjoyable for the visitors who come, and in return we are able to make Chalfield our family home. It's a win all around. And finally, Kit Acton and his partner Tabitha describe what it is like to be tenants at East Bog Farm in Northumberland. 
where they have lived for the past five years. My home, East Bog Farm, is just down the hill from Hadrian's Wall. We look out to Steel Rig, one of Hadrian's Wall's best-known viewpoints, and nearby Housestead's Fort, which sees about 150,000 visitors a year. It's strange to think that in Roman times there were up to a thousand people living in the fort, but nowadays, in the winter, there's just a handful of chilly-looking tourists and my sheep. East Bog Farm has a very traditional feel. It's an old farmhouse, and like most of the buildings nearby, it was probably built using stone from Hadrian's Wall. From the front, it looks like two buildings, because originally one part of the house was a dairy. My parents live nearby on Bradley Farm, which is where I grew up. They were first-generation farmers and moved to Bradley in the 1980s, a couple of years before I was born. As children, my brother and I often ran around playing with wooden swords from the shop at Housesteads, but I don't think I fully appreciated growing up on top of all this archaeology. Today, my parents and I run our two farm businesses together as one. Our farm might look archaic, but it's actually a very modern operation. All the sheep have electronic ear tags and are recorded with radio frequency identification technology. Looking out from Hadrian's Wall, it would be easy to think you were standing in the wilderness, but under the bonnet, things are pretty busy. There's quite a strong community spirit. I see most of my neighbours every day, and we have community events, including our annual agricultural show. It could be quite an isolating place, but we've got social media, and I think mental health in the countryside is something the farming community is becoming more aware of. I do end up taking this location for granted. It strikes me most when I go to the city and come back. I miss the space, peace and quiet, and wonder why I left. Here, our nearest neighbour is about half a mile away. We don't have many amenities, but we don't need them. We'll just go and have a picnic somewhere rather than going to a cafe. My favourite season is late spring into early summer. We have lots of lambs and calves, and everything feels fresh and new. One of the best things about living and working here is that there's no commuting. I can just head straight out of the door with my collies, Twix and Flake. This edition's Object I Love is brought to us by Joanna Malpress who has been volunteering as a room guide at Nostal in West Yorkshire for 15 years. Joanna has learned a lot about the Palladian Mansion and its historic family, the Wynns. And here she tells the story of Susanna Wynn's 18th century baby house. My childhood doll's house was more of a bungalow, a single-storey dwelling with a bright red roof. I remember playing with its chunky furniture and sticking bits of paper onto the walls, but it wasn't until I started volunteering here as a room guide 15 years ago, fulfilling a long-held ambition to work in a house like Nostal, that I began to learn of the long history of dolls' houses in general, and this one in particular. Dolls' houses became popular across Europe from the Renaissance onwards. Their miniature interiors are tiny time capsules, microcosms of how people lived their lives and furnished their homes at particular moments. Early British dolls' houses usually took the form of townhouses, with furniture often purchased in London, where families spent the social season. They were collector's items, but also educational tools, 
particularly for girls, for whom schooling opportunities were often limited. They also helped to fill the often stiflingly dull hours of wealthy ladies. Until the early Victorian period, dolls' houses were known as baby houses and dolls as babies. Nostal's baby house dates from the 18th century. It's one of only a dozen or so surviving from the time. Its biggest draw for visiting children is looking for the tiny ivory mouse hidden inside. Nostal's doll's house has a rare connection to its historic family. It belonged to Susanna Henshaw, who married Roland Wynne, the fourth baronet, in 1729. The Wynnes were an upwardly mobile family, and also in 1729, Roland commissioned a new house on the site of his family manor of Nostal that matched his social aspirations. We don't know much about Susanna, and there is no known portrait of her. A now-lost note found stuck to the ceiling of one of the doll's house rooms suggests she and her sister Catherine furnished it together during the 1720s and 1730s. Nor do we know who made Susanna's baby house. It might have been architect James Payne, who designed and built much of Nostal. The doll's house has beautifully detailed outside walls that slide away to reveal the interior and high-quality glass windows. Inside are three floors, each with three rooms. There's an elaborate kitchen, a state apartment for entertaining, and a dining parlour. The beds are particularly wonderful, with mattresses, bolsters, sheets, blankets, and under-blankets. Susanna and her sister might even have made some items themselves. Some of the red velvet, which was very expensive, has pinpricks in it, as if it has been used before and unpicked. It could have been the girls who cut out the tiny prints from books and hand-coloured them to make a montage on the walls. It all speaks of great care and time. Susanna had nine children, but just two survived. She might have let them play with her baby house, but only under close supervision. Sadly, she died in childbirth in 1741, at the age of 42, and never got to live in the real grand new house at Nostal. The doll's house is a treasure with countless stories to tell. I'm glad that this year it's to be prominently displayed. Megumi Kawakami is a National Trust member who moved to the UK seven years ago with her family, and she's enjoyed visiting trust sites ever since. She told us, My husband, Corey, is Canadian, and I am Japanese. We have a daughter, Miwa, who is both Canadian and Japanese, and is growing up in the UK with a British accent. We consider ourselves rather unusual here for being a family with two different nationalities, and races, for that matter, living in a third country. I think diversity is one of the beauties of living in a country like the UK in this modern-day world, and I'm delighted that we all now have British citizenship. In your anniversary issue, I would love to read about the Trust's role in promoting diversity over the past 125 years. Are there any places in Trust Care which have stories about different people from different cultural backgrounds, different countries and different races? We thought this was a fascinating question, 
So we asked John Orna Ornstein and Corinne Fowler to write about the Trust's role in promoting diversity over the past 125 years. John is the Trust's Director of Culture and Engagement, and Corinne is leading a project called Colonial Countryside Reinterpreting National Trust Houses, which is funded by the Arts Council and the National Lottery Heritage Fund. We're delighted to reply to Megumi's question with a resounding yes. The National Trust looks after hundreds of places bursting with stories of the lives of people from across the centuries and all over the world. Some of these stories are wonderfully positive, others deeply thought-provoking or moving. Some make decidedly uncomfortable reading today. The histories of African, Asian and mixed-race people run alongside those of landed gentry and middle classes in the countryside, from Roman times to the last days of the empire. Rural Britain was shaped by the colonial wealth that flowed into it, and the Industrial Revolution transformed the lives of working people across the UK. Until recently, many of these stories remained hidden, with a focus on relatively narrow family histories and historic places in isolation, meaning global stories were sometimes overlooked. Today, they shine a light on the historical origins of today's multicultural Britain, from the global influence of fashion to the lives of people who once called trust places home. The houses themselves and the art and furniture they contain offer important glimpses into how people across the globe interacted at key moments. Let's start with the Molyneux Globe at Petworth House in West Sussex, made by globe-making pioneer Emery Molyneux. Only two of Molyneux's terrestrial globes are known to be in existence. Thought to be the earliest English-made terrestrial globe, Petworth's dates from 1592 and measures 2 feet 1 inch 64 centimeters in diameter. It illustrates how the urge for exploration has long driven global connections. Molyneux is said to have joined Francis Drake on his 1577-80 trip around the world. The globe includes coloured lines showing voyages of exploration made by Drake and others, including Diego, an African circumnavigator. The Molyneux globe was acquired by the ninth wizard Earl of Northumberland, so dubbed for his interest in science and alchemy, and was reputedly a gift from Walter Raleigh. Saltram, in Devon, houses a magical copy of the Nuremberg Chronicle. Printed and published in 1493, the book is an early history of the world and documents the known cities in Europe and the Middle East. It helped create a demand for knowledge about the world, as well as an appetite for reading the printed word. The National Trust's copy was once housed in the library of a German monastery. Domestic homes and fashions, and even associated language, were enormously impacted by global migration, trade and travel. A well-known example is the influence of Chinese porcelain on European tableware. When blue and white dishes, like those in the collection of Wallington in Northumberland, arrived on European shores from China in the 17th century, no European maker could then match the exceptional craftsmanship. The product became known as China because of its origins and came to represent elegance and sophistication. The fashion for collecting blue and white porcelain continued for centuries. Sometimes, the association with global fashions was taken to extremes. One of the most surprising interiors in any National Trust house is found at Erdig, near Wrexham. 
Sometime in the 1770s, owners Elizabeth and Philip York chose to redecorate their house. They employed the best craftspeople and purchased objects from around the world. Their bedroom was decorated with the finest hand-painted Chinese wallpaper. It must have all seemed extraordinarily exotic to their neighbours. At Basildon Park in Berkshire, meanwhile, the garden room is papered with India-inspired Zuba wallpaper designed in 1806 by a French artist who had never been to India in his life. A new installation, India and Me, A Journey at Basildon, explores contemporary migration by simply and sensitively bringing the wallpaper to life, simultaneously bringing into the room the voices of the Indian Community Centre in Reading. It was designed in collaboration with Studio 24, a digital design agency, and funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. There are powerful stories about partition, flight, and moving and settling in the UK. The stories are told with humour, passion, and depth amid the sounds of Indian birds and projections to animate the wallpaper. It's very simple and very beautiful. Perhaps one of the Trust's most remarkable houses is 575 Wandsworth Road, home to the Kenyan poet and civil servant Kadambi Asalache, until his death in 2006. For two decades, Asalache painstakingly decorated the interior with Moorish-influenced fretwork. Each piece was cut by hand from scrap wood. The result, complemented by Asalache's collection of 19th-century English lusterware, is extraordinary. The house now provides a meeting place for local community groups as well as an intriguing visit. Many National Trust houses demonstrate extreme wealth across the centuries, but others have stories of social as well as cultural and ethnic diversity. The workhouse at Southwell, Nottinghamshire, is thought to be the most complete example of a 19th century workhouse in existence. It was built for those who were able-bodied but out of work. Its harsh conditions intended to deter all but the truly destitute. Its Victorian inmates were segregated by gender and age and expected to go about their business in silence. By the middle of the 20th century, it had become more of a general care facility for the poor, elderly and homeless, and it remained open until the 1980s. This recently reinterpreted building addresses the question of how society today manages poverty as well as in the past. These are just some examples of the diversity and wonderful complexity of the interconnected stories that we think make the exploration of the National Trust's places and collections so endlessly fascinating and rewarding. We have plans to research and share more of these stories in the coming months. Now for the news roundup. Here's Lisa Coleman and Glenn McCready. Purbeck Super National Nature Reserve. The Trust has joined forces with six partners to create the first Super National Nature Reserve, or NNR, in England on the Purbeck Heaths in Dorset. The new reserve will expand the current NNR in Purbeck threefold to create a 3,331 hectare, that's 8,231 acre, Landscape Scale Haven, the largest lowland heathland national nature reserve in the country. 
We're working in partnership with, among others, Natural England, RSPB, Forestry England, the Rempstone Estate, Dorset Wildlife Trust, and Amphibian and Reptile Conservation. This super-reserve is a rich mosaic of habitats that is home to rare wildlife such as the sand lizard and the Dartford warbler. The Trust already has 746 hectares, that's 1,843 acres of land in the National Nature Reserve, and has now been designated a further 644 hectares, 1,591 acres. David Brown, the Trust ecologist for Purbeck, says... For generations to come, Purbeck Heaths will be at the heart of a healthy, resilient mega-landscape, brimming with wildlife. As well as creating a special place for wildlife to recover and move around freely, we hope to inspire people to engage with nature. No mow may. This summer, the Trust is supporting the Plant Life Initiative, encouraging gardeners and rangers to let their grass grow in May and give plants the chance to flower. No Mow May aims to allow plants such as daisies to flower for bees and butterflies. Every Flower Counts, 23rd to the 31st of May, invites people to count the flowers growing in a square metre of lawn and receive their personal nectar score. For more information, go to nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash mag forward slash no dash mo dash may. Beavers return. In January 2020, a pair of adult beavers were released on the Holnicott estate in Somerset to help with flood management and improve biodiversity. They were the first to be released on trust land and are now settling into a 2.7 hectare, that 6.6 acre, fenced area of woodland. Project manager Ben Eardley says, the beaver's presence in our rivers is a sustainable way to help make the landscape more resilient to climate change. Livedon reconnected. Livedon in Northamptonshire hopes to reopen its doors later this year with brand new facilities following a conservation project. The project, named Livedon Reconnected, has brought the manor building and surrounding grounds together for visitors for the first time since the 17th century. Visitors will be able to learn more about Sir Thomas Tresham, who built Livedon in response to the tumultuous religious changes in Elizabethan England. Over £220,000 has been raised for the project, including £20,000 on site over the past two years. Lost Muses. After years of detective work, the lost statues of the nine muses have been recreated and restored to Stowe in Buckinghamshire. For around a hundred years, the muses, goddesses of the creative arts, were an important element of the landscape gardens, but were sold off to pay family debts in the early 20th century. The new statues were painstakingly recreated from composite stone using moulds from three surviving statues. A future for Oxborough. A £6 million conservation project is underway at Oxborough Hall in Norfolk to secure the future of the 500-year-old building and its collection. It includes repairs to the roof, windows, chimneys and medieval gatehouse facade. Conservation access is via a complex scaffold, which will be erected around the hall with the added complication that the building is surrounded by a moat. 
thanks to the National Lottery Heritage Fund and the Wolfson Foundation for their support. The work will take until 2021 to complete. Those were some of the highlights from the news. We look forward to welcoming you back once the current restrictions are lifted. Well, that's all from us this summer issue. I hope you've enjoyed it despite the slightly different format. Do let us know. You can email us at magazine at nationaltrust.org.uk. The National Trust magazine Summer 2020 was presented by me, Sally Palmer. The readers were Lisa Coleman and Glenn McCready. It was produced for the National Trust by Sound Understanding. All items are copyright. CDs of this audio edition are available to visually impaired members of the National Trust and are distributed by the RNIB. If you know of anyone who is eligible and would like to receive one, please call the RNIB on 01733 375 370. Or you can write, enclosing the membership number, to Sales and Operations, RNIB, Midgate House, Midgate, Peterborough, PE11TN. This audio magazine is also available to download or stream as a podcast. You can access this and previous issues free of charge from Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud and other audio platforms. For more information, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening and I hope you can join us for the next audio issue of National Trust magazine.